God only says no to anything because he's already said yes to something else. God creates a boundary because of something he values. Hello, this is Pastor John. This is Pastor Tim. This is the Every Moment His podcast, broadcasted throughout the world. Yeah, syndicated. In 70 different languages. <laughs> nope, not true. <laughs> Someday. Someday, maybe. I don't know. But, um, but I do know that today we are continuing the theme of a biblical approach to sexuality and gender. And today we're taking up the topic of homosexuality again. Uh, we began that last week where we really shared the stories of people who in the church experience same-sex attraction and yet uh, they've taken a different path than what the the culture has often encouraged and and even what some professing christians have encouraged uh you know like a different interpretation of the scriptures which we'll talk about today Uh, but today we're going to really dig into the text of scripture and really look at what would convince someone experiencing same-sex attraction to do a very countercultural thing by not acting on these attractions. Yeah, to say I'm going to live first and foremost to honor God and what he says. Mhm. Okay. And from a cultural perspective that just sounds like crazy talk. I mean, yeah. Like there's not even a category for that, but yet we noted on our previous episode that uh, the gospel is such good news that it really gives us the leverage to let go of things and and it costs all of us something. Yeah. And, and sometimes it costs us much. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. that applies to our sexuality or our, our finances, our personal well-being and happiness. Uh, maybe even, well, I say temporarily because all yeah. happiness is eventually found in God. But uh, maybe it, it affects us even in the giving up of our lives as we see with the early church. And so, um, but Jesus is good enough news that we get it all back and then some. Yeah. Yeah. So there, something uh, has caused these people to act in this way that's mm-hmm. not expected. And so today we're really going to dig in and try to figure out, you know, these people who have same-sex attraction, what motivated them to change their hearts and to have their hearts renewed, so that they would be a- have strength to walk in this strange way, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and continue to go that direction. I'm sure it's challenging. You have a joke. I do. Yes. Yeah. This so, is a good one. Joke I know of the it. Day. I do know it. Okay. So make make sure you laugh. I will. Okay. <laughs> so what what is the best breed of dog for doing magic tricks? Go ahead and tell me. It's a Labracadabra doodle. Labracadabra doodle. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Mystical creature. Mystical creature. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. There we go. Okay. That's good. So um, (laughs) before we begin, we just want to recommend some books. I think that uh, book recommendations are good because there's only so much time that you're going to want to listen to us on the podcast, but uh, there are people who have written books that are very articulate, uh, some of whom have struggled and continue to struggle with same-sex attraction. So so one book is by uh, Kevin DeYoung, and he wrote a book called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? We kind of stole that title for our podcast today. Uh, thanks, Kevin DeYoung. Yep. Don't know if you hear us out there, but um, but he wrote this book really to kind of address what has been uh, in recent years 
an interpretation of the Bible that would say that there is a place for, for acting on same-sex attraction. And he does mm -hmm. a really good job of sorting through those scriptures. Fairly. Fairly, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, the next is um, by a Lutheran pastor, um, Dr. Matthew Rieger, Sexual Morality in a Christless World. And he really does go back to the ancient world. He, he's really well-versed in classics, you know, the Greco-Roman yeah. world, and draws some uh, connections between that world and our world now, and also kind of offers a path forward. So Yeah, he's also a speaker, uh, I believe. He's often asked to lecture yeah. on these things. In yeah. fact, I think I heard him speak once, and he had mentioned that uh, he had kind of a part-time gig over at Iowa State, uh, that he was invited to come and speak at Iowa State to give um, a traditional Christian view um, of sexual ethics. Okay. Yeah. Uh, finally, who do we have? Sam Albury. Uh, I, we mentioned him last time as well, mm. uh, that his book, Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, just a really excellent, straightforward um, presentation of... of um, who God really is. Very small book, too. You can yeah. read it quickly. And he not only shares his experience and how the church can be, you know, welcoming to those who are experiencing same-sex attraction, but he also does a great job of doing the, the biblical interpretation for us. Um, so our plan today is we want to briefly cover the main scriptures that have led Christians uh, within the church to teach and continue to teach that homosexual behavior is, along with a whole lot of other sexual sins, uh, not pleasing to God. Um, and also, we want to deal with some of the recent objections to the church's teaching on this. And I say recent because, uh, by and large, uh, for the first 2,000 years or so of the church, there's been no challenge to the traditional biblical sexual sexual ethic yeah. uh, which would affirm a lifelong monogamous male female yeah. uh, sexual relationships as the as the norm yeah. and, and i think that's important and it's it's even longer than the new testament yeah it goes back uh, to the church, old testament right? yeah um but i i think um it's important to to note that because we could arrogantly i think step into a camp that would say all of those people before us were just bigots they, they just didn't know what they were talking right. about. Yeah, they were on the wrong side of history. They, and we are much more developed, much more advanced, much more ethically pure even mm -hmm. than them. And I think that's a pit, that's just a, a foolish way to look at history. Yeah. Um, and I think we should definitely, especially on big questions like this, big questions of sexuality, we should right. have an open mind, and especially in the church. What did the church say for so long? Not only that, what have other cultures said? Because we can often get into this. Uh, this can become a culturally insensitive topic. I'll mm -hmm. give you an example. Uh, in the very liberal state churches of, uh, say, Scandinavia, um, Germany, those churches have adopted a, a new hermeneutic, a new exegesis of the Bible that really isn't grounded in, I would say, grounded in faithfulness or logic. Uh, but they're trying to argue that, that well, there is a place uh, for saying that, you know, maybe monogamous homosexual relationships are permissible. Well, they've really tried to kind of push that on, say, the African churches, uh, the African Lutheran churches or um, other global south churches. And they've said that, that well, we don't, we don't want to accept your 
European Enlightenment mm. kind of um, interpretation of the scripture, we actually don't agree with you. And, and, and so sometimes our kind of Western, European, modern way of interpreting the world gets kind of pushed on those of different cultures who don't actually accept those things. Yeah. So and we can become a little culturally tone deaf. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Or, yeah. or much, <laughs> very much cu- culturally tone deaf. And end up saying, um, I've heard these kinds of things happen, mm-hmm. and the African churches in particular defend the traditional view of sexuality against yeah. the European or the American church. Even. Exactly. You have all yeah. these African bishops who are like, actually, our churches are older than yours. Yeah, right. Because yeah. the church <laughs> was in Europe, was in Africa before it was ever in like Germany. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. So. And they're also saying we're not children and we're not fools. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you don't have to talk down to us as if we need you to tell us, you know, how to interpret scripture. So very interesting. But yeah. Um, so we're going to begin with uh, the teachings of Jesus, and we're going to begin with Jesus because, well, first of all, Jesus is central. The whole entire Bible is about Jesus, and, um, and also because some people will say that Jesus never had anything to say about the issue of homosexuality. Yeah, and so they'll say, you know, Paul... Um, Peter, you know, like we don't, we just a Jesus, I'm just a Jesus only Christian. Yeah. I'm a red letter. I know what Paul said about homosexuality, but I'm a a Jesus only Christian and Jesus didn't address it. Yeah. Why is that a wrong way to think about this? Well, okay. So for one, we do see Jesus in embracing people, you know, who are living uh, within a sinful lifestyle. So you see in Luke chapter seven, I believe the, the woman who is just called a sinful woman, but Mm -hmm. likely you know, prostitution, mm-hmm. and, and she comes and weeps at his feet, and Jesus welcomes her and forgives her. We see Jesus hanging out with Zacchaeus, the tax collectors, all these people who are kind of on the, the margins, the, the fringes of society, who are rejected by the religious elite, and Jesus welcomes them and gives them a seat at the table. But he also renews their lives, and, and yeah. so we see this beautiful repentance taking place, and even a costly leaving behind. Uh, and And so yes, we do see Jesus being very inclusive, but we do see Jesus holding up a very strong sexual ethic. And I would say the reason why Jesus never mentions homosexuality in particular is because it wasn't a live issue for Jewish people of his day. Jesus wasn't speaking to Corinth or to Rome where these things were widely practiced and, and accepted. Uh, Jesus is speaking to first century Jewish people who were not debating whether homosexuality was acceptable or not. Uh, um, they, they just weren't asking those questions. And so we can point out that Jesus never condemned uh, something like, say, um, Jesus never openly condemned uh, like uh, relationships, you know, like pedophilia relationships. Mm-hmm. He, he never yeah. openly condemns that. But of course we would. We would. Of course. He never condemns that because it wasn't an, a, a live issue. Like nobody yeah. was making a case for that, even though those things, pedophilia was Happening. practiced, kind of kind of system, systematically practiced yeah. in, in the Roman Greek world. And, and maybe he did. It's just not recorded for us. Right, because yeah. it just wasn't a live issue. Uh, yeah. But I'll tell you what was a live issue was the question of divorce. Uh, and so that's where we see Jesus talking about his sexual ethic. And so in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, 
the Pharisees, the scribes, they come to Jesus and they ask if it's permissible for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. Now, this is going back to the law of Moses, which did permit divorce. Uh, Jesus says that, well, Moses gave you that commandment because of your hardness of heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was very much a tinderbox issue. Like this was the divide the church at the time kind of issue. Gotcha. Like, it's like right now people come to a church and they say, what does your church teach about homosexuality as kind of a, am I going to be part of this church or not? Back then, a very live question that divided people was, is it permissible to divorce your wife for any reason? Yeah. Some of the the rabbis said, you can divorce your wife if she burns your food. Right. And then other rabbis said, well, you can only divorce your wife for really extreme cases. And Jesus takes an even more conservative view, and he says, uh, except for marital unfaithfulness, adultery. Mm. And, and so, so Jesus is really taking this sexual ethic that is a notch higher than his adversaries. So l- let's see what he says here, right? This is uh, Matthew 19. <coughs> Pharisees come to him and testing him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, right? That's a qu- mm-hmm. live question. Yep. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And why this is so important is because when Jesus is going to talk about marriage, he's going to speak within a male-female category. Uh, he, he's really not going into other arrangements. He's, he's going back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and he's, he's even going before the law of Moses mm-hmm. was giving, and he's saying that his sexual ethic, his teaching on marriage goes back to God's intention for creation. And so right. when we think about Jesus in terms of you know, his stance on homosexuality, we have to acknowledge that, that Jesus is thinking in that male-female category, and then also that there were no Jews in the first century world that we know of that we're making a case for homosexuality if jesus had i'm sure it would have been written down yeah because it would have been so just countercultural against the grain so this this is important too just in in knowing jesus at all mm-hmm. is jesus ties himself to the old testament he does so yeah. if you believe in jesus if you think that's the son of god i'm a red letter christian well, Jesus always points back to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Everything, every word that he says. So does Paul, too. Yeah, that's and right. And there are some we things that we've trend. let go of as we come into the New Testament. You mm-hmm. know, certain foods we can eat and what day you worship. Yeah. Uh, but those are all fulfilled in Christ. And as we'll see later, uh, a lot of it carries over. But we'll talk about that more specifically in a bit. Okay. Let's go now to the, the creation account. Because that's where Jesus takes us. So let's go there. Okay. So next, um, you know, Jesus goes back to creation, showing us male and female when he talks about marriage and sexuality. And, and so in Genesis 1 through 2, we get a very positive picture of male-female sexuality. Do you want to read those verses from Genesis yeah. 1, 27 to 28? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. 
Um, so what we want our listeners to see here is that God only says no to anything because he's already said yes to something else. God creates a boundary because of something he values. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that he values this male-female union from which we have marriage. And, and also purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, multiplication. Yep. So that is part of what it means to bear God's image. And, and, and yes, and in a male-female sense. And so, yeah, that God is creating us male and female in his image and that together male and female will bear that image together and fulfill his purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not to say that singleness is less than God's purpose because in the New Testament we see Jesus himself and Paul and others adopting singleness. Uh, but when it comes to the realm of sexuality, that there is this complementary created togetherness that comes uh, with male and female. Okay. And we can't just do away with that. Uh, So, you know, for a man and a man to be sexual or to be married uh, really kind of, it it conflicts with the very createdness that God has given. Um, It's going against the grain of what God has woven into the fabric of creation. Yeah, so we can look both to the biological createdness of male Mm -hmm. and female as being made for each other. And we can also look with some mystery at the fact that in our counterness, we reflect God himself and the image of God himself. Yes. I mean, so in the Trinity, for example, you don't have the the father and the father. You have the father and the son. Yeah. And then... uh, from the Father and the Son comes the Spirit. Yeah. And as I've heard it described before, within marriage, you have the husband and the wife, and from their union proceeds a one flesh union, a child. Kiddo, yeah. And it, it just, you know, even our relationships begin to reflect the, the triune God. Yeah. And even our marriages are, are intended to go beyond creation and reflect the church. And so Sam Alberry makes this point in one of the lectures he's given is that um, when Paul talks about the church, he says uh, that the husband uh, and the wife have a church and bride relationship, I mean a a, a Christ and church relationship. Mm -hmm. So um, the husband represents Christ and the wife represents uh, the church. Yeah. And so for there to be a female-female relationship sexually would be like a church-church relationship. Yeah. Or for there to be a male-male relationship would be like having a Christ-Christ relationship. Uh, that, that because the church reflects this union between um, Christ and, and his bride, yeah, yeah, so, and this is uh, what we find in, in Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 in yeah. particular. He's pointing out this analogy, and, and rightfully so, he says, this is a great mystery. Right, right. He's basically <laughs> this is a saying mega that, mystery. He's saying that, that this mystery of marriage isn't really even about a man and a woman coming yeah. together. It's about Christ and the church coming together. But every marriage, every Christian marriage in particular, reflects the beauty of this bigger marriage. And so 
if you were if you were going to try to advance the argument that okay here in Genesis we have um, this description of the first marriage right male and female that's for sure but we don't have an explicit prohibition of male and male relationships or male and female relationships so I've heard this argument um, try to be advanced that mm-hmm. well God doesn't say no so this also could be good it's just not recorded well except that you know in other books of the bible god does say no Mm. and we would say he says no on the basis of the very positive view of male and female marriage in genesis 1 and 2 and so god isn't just saying no just because it's not just an arbitrary random commandment um but he's giving that commandment on the basis of the creation story and so sexuality takes place within a bigger story which is creation so yeah the one reason that that's a super weak argument is, like you said, um, it, it's an argument from silence, right? Right. And, and when you hold up the beauty of what God approves, mm-hmm. you see that um, it, the homosexual relationship does not reflect that beauty. It doesn't have the same characteristics. Right. And there are some conclusions we can draw from the Genesis account that I think are very important to know, too. So one is that in the creation account, uh, it's male-female. There's no alternate story for male-male or female-female or even multiple partners. Even though in the Old Testament, you have examples of people like Abraham or or Jacob Mm -hmm. who have multiple Mm -hmm. wives. Jesus actually goes back to creation and doesn't really bless that. Yeah. In fact, that's nowhere blessed. It's nowhere blessed. In the Old Testament. And every time we see it, there's always a lot of drama. Yeah. There's problems. Yeah. Uh, not everything that the biblical characters do is is permitted by God. Yeah. We recognize that they are often very sinful, flawed characters. So, so when you have that argument that like, well, we see a lot of different mm-hmm. marriage arrangements in the Old Testament. Well, yeah, we do, but they're never like blessed, and they're often very messy. So it's often you know it's descriptive of what happened. Yeah. But not prescriptive for what we should do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, we also see that in this male-female relationship in Genesis that there's a complementary uh, union, that the man and the woman are coming together in a very complementary way, not just in terms of like, you know, mutual companionship and all that, but also physically and and really ordered toward procreation. And of course, not every marriage union is going to c- produce children. Mm-hmm. But it is the the rule, right, and not the exception. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that um, most married couples, when they come together, they're going to have children, and and that's because that male female union is naturally ordered towards procreation. Um, there is nothing in the male to male or female to female sexual relationship that is ordered towards procreation. Yeah, it's incapable. It's incapable of it. It's sterile. Right. And so, yeah. So for couples who maybe have never had children, Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean that you're less human or less. No, no. um, But it's saying that um, this was in a fallen world that may happen. Right. And so for somebody who, you know, is is experiencing, you know, not being able to have a child, um, there is an issue within the biology there where Mm -hmm. things could potentially maybe be resolved or not, but but everything is is ordered towards that 
Yeah. But within like a homosexual relationship, of course, there's no chance of fertility, right? Right. I mean, there's just, for that union alone, it, it cannot produce life, right? Okay. Well, let, let's move on. Um, the next stop we want to make is in Romans chapter 1. I just want to add one more, though. Yeah. I just want to point out that mm, in yeah. Genesis, the male-female relationship has the clear blessing of God, and God blesses them and says, mm. be fruitful and multiply. However, you never see a blessing on same-sex relationships right. uh, in, the, uh, in the scriptures. You, yeah. you see the opposite, but you don't see a, a clear blessing. Um, yeah, good. Okay, so Romans chapter 1, um, St. Paul brings about this powerful argument that we can know at least some things about God by mm -hmm. examining his creation. Right. And then he's going to use that to kind of explain why the Greco-Roman world in particular had kind of lost sense of sexuality and ethics yeah. there. So um, do you want to read it for us? Sure, yeah. So this is Romans 1, 25 through 26. And uh, right before Paul makes the case that the Jewish people are guilty of breaking God's law, he's going to first kind of set them up for that conversation by showing them that the, the Greco-Roman world has, has broken God's commandments. And it can be seen through first idolatry, but then misplaced worship leads to misplaced sexuality. And so this is what he says. Um, he says, therefore God gave them up. He's talking about the Greeks and Romans, the Gentiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Yeah. And so what I find interesting about this is he, he points out the connection to idolatry. Mm -hmm. They've kind of lost the storyline. They don't know who the true God is. And because of this, God has given them over. So he describes this as um, a natural form of judgment. So when God ignores people and as they're going the wrong direction, they receive in themselves a due penalty. So it's almost like the experience of exchanging natural relations for unnatural is a, is the penalty itself. Uh, but his argument mm -hmm. comes from nature. Yeah, yeah. There is this connection between same-sex, you know, relationships and idolatry and really uh, sex as its own end rather mm -hmm. than a means to a God-ordained end mm -hmm. that God has blessed. And... Um, and, and, you know, some people will try to say that Paul is talking about maybe a, a different kind of homosexuality. Um, maybe he's talking about something that's coerced, non-consensual, kind of uh, a male, younger boy kind of situation, which was kind of institutionalized a little bit in the ancient world, at least among the Greeks mm -hmm. and, and to some extent the Romans. 
Or then maybe Paul was talking about like temple prostitution, you know, male prostitutes. But, um, but I don't think there's any evidence in here because for that, because once again, there's nothing positive said about uh, same-sex relationships like that. Yeah. Okay. So he clearly describes them as uh, not reflecting the image of God. I think that's right. important because it's tying back to that Genesis text it saying, is, yeah, yeah, male and females in the image of God. Right. Paul is saying they've left the image of God mm-hmm. and they've started to re- reflect the things that they're worshiping, which is the creation instead of the creator. Right. And this okay. is pretty sobering language. And, and perhaps I think for our modern sensitive mm-hmm. ears, they might even be a little sensitive. But we have to remember that when Paul's writing this in the first century, um, he, he's not writing this uh, t- to anybody who who would would disagree with it. Mm-hmm. You know, even in the in the Roman world, there was a recognition that this isn't right. And and you know, we have a long kind of complicated philosophical and historical process in, in our Western world that has kind of brought us to to affirming these things as healthy and normalizing these things. But we need to remember that that Scripture just doesn't speak often within the, the categories or the sensitivities that we do. That doesn't mean that it's hate speech. No, because I believe that this, the, the church should be one of the safest places for people to know they're going to be loved and, and respected and treated with kindness, regardless of whatever their lifestyle is. You know, um, but, but we do have to, to recognize what God's word says. You know? Yeah. I mean... And I think it's also important to note that Paul's rhetoric here, he's laying out these things that he knows his Jewish, primarily Jewish audience is going to agree with because yeah. they pro- they had a uh, sexual ethic based on Genesis already. Right. And they were having a problem integrating with new um, Christians who are not Jewish and who had difficult different sexual ethics. Yeah. But he's going to use this to say, but you're not justified by your own works right by the uh, by about mid chapter three yeah everybody's going to be silenced before god's judgment and in desperate need of the gospel right regardless of whatever their sexual ethic is yeah uh so we need to remember that but nonetheless the the truth put out there Mm -hmm. still applies that um this uh this activity is not god pleasing right yeah yeah so now we're going to move to a couple of verses that have to do with, with, you know, where God just gives a clear no. And up to this point, we've focused on really the story, the story of, of creation. And, um, and that's where the scriptures are going to find a language for sexuality is male and female. Uh, and that's why, you know, now we can get to the prohibition verses where God just says no. And the reason he says no is because of, of, of that story. And so the kind of the most plain one from the Old Testament would be Leviticus 18.22 and then echoed in 20 verse 13 where uh, it says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, oftentimes people will look at that and they'll say, well, Leviticus doesn't count. We can cancel that verse because it's Old Testament. What would you say in response to that? Yeah, I think um, we have to be careful with that move because... First of all, Jesus quotes Leviticus, and the most yeah. famous one is love your neighbor as yourself. We don't want to cancel that. No. No. And so we need to be careful about what we're selecting mm-hmm. to cancel and what we're not. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, in Leviticus, there's a clear m- 
moral ethic put forward. There's also a lot of ceremonial law, mm-hmm. uh, civil law that has been completed by Christ. Right. But this law in particular, the law of love towards neighbor mm-hmm. and all of the ways that works itself out, that stands. Right. Okay. Yeah, so there's the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral law. And, and so we're able to eat bacon, for example. We're able to worship on Sunday instead of Saturday because you know these are things that have been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, but the moral law still holds on. In fact, it's even intensified in the mm-hmm. New Testament. Yeah. And uh, so, for example, when you read chapter 18 of Leviticus, the prohibition against a man lying with another man, as with a woman, is going to be spoken right in the middle of prohibitions against incest, adultery, bestiality, sacrificing children to idols, you know, all things that hopefully we're going to say that we don't want to see practiced. Right? right. Yeah. Okay. So we shouldn't give ourselves license to just erase the things we don't think ought to be in those prohibitions. Right. Uh, because as I've heard before, that a little learning can be very dangerous. And so if we just write off that verse because we say, oh, the Old Testament's a bunch of laws we don't have to keep. Well, not so quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there is a word that Paul uses. Um, so, and, and he's going to use this word in the New Testament to talk about homosexuality. But he actually coins that word on the basis of two words from Leviticus 18. Okay. And so the word is arsenikoitai. Arsenikoitai literally means um, man bed. And and it's just a kind of a euphemism for saying men who have sex with men. Okay. And those two words are taken, arsenikoitai, are taken, man and bed are taken from Leviticus. And then in the New Testament, Paul is going to make this word arsenikoitai, which really means the active partner Mm -hmm. in a same-sex male encounter. Um, But then there's also another word that he's going to use, and that word is uh, uh, malakos. And malakos really can mean soft or effeminate, but it often referred to the passive partner in same-sex relationships, Uh, so like a male prostitute or a slave kept for sexual purposes. So he's going to use both of those terms. He is, and, and so you're actually, in your Bible, if it's ESV or NIV, when you read, say, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or 1 Timothy 1, 10, where Paul labels homosexual practice as sin, it's actually two words combined into one phrase. And so your Bible likely will say, men who practice homosexuality. And, and that is taken from two Greek words which refer to both the active and the passive partner. Okay. Uh, the one who plays the male role and the, and the female role. So, so we might say that he, he's being thorough. He is being thorough. I mean, he, he's, and, and what he's also doing is he's removing this kind of idea that um, Paul's talking about non-consensual kind of mm-hmm. um, aggressive domineering male-to-male sexuality. Um, which that's an argument that Paul's talking about basically rape. Yeah, right, or, right. Or he's just talking about the passive partner, talking about, you know, cult prostitution. But really he's talking about both. He's yeah. talking about both men in the sexual position. encounter. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, and so this is what he says, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, 6 verse 9, and there's a few things we should probably point out here, so listen. Uh, it sa- he says this, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So first, do you want to comment on that? There's a list there. Well, there's a list, you know, and Paul is fond of using lists. Jesus is too, yeah. you know, and, and there's this debate about maybe when Jesus uses the all-encompassing term porneia mm-hmm. to refer to sexually immoral practices that homosexuality might there. be a part of that. But yeah. but yeah, Jesus has lists and then Paul has lists too. Now, obviously, Jesus' list is going to be maybe a little different because, you know, Jesus' lists, you know, of like these things come out of the heart. I think Matthew mm-hmm. 15, yeah. sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, you know, those things were maybe, you know, more readily practiced in the ancient Jewish world. But Paul's giving lists that are specific to the Greek Roman world as he's writing letters to them. To Corinth, yeah. To Corinth yeah. and to places where these things are, are pretty much part of the social fabric. And, and But note that he's listing homosexual sin alongside heterosexual sin and alongside sins that are not sexual, like being a slanderer or a drunkard or yeah, greedy. Yeah, yeah. And, and so... There's not a super special category here. No, no. I mean, we need to recognize all of these things as sins. Yeah. And, and, and I think that kind of levels the playing field a little bit, that we're all sinners in need of God's grace. We all have much to repent from. Paul isn't just singling something out here. Yeah. And so neither should we. So the other part of this passage, verse 11 and following, is where we get this beautiful good news, right? Where he says this, and such were, past tense, such, such were some of you. Mm-hmm. All of those categories, right? Yeah, and he's not saying that you're no longer tempted by these things, yeah, you're experiencing right. a, an attraction to these things, but he's saying your core identity used is to be different. That. Yeah, yeah, it used to be this, but not anymore. So what happened? He says this, but you were washed. Mm-hmm. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what's beautiful about this is this sin is counted among all the rest of the sins, slander, adul- uh, adultery, fornication, cheat, you know, cheating on your spouse, mm-hmm. all these things, yeah. all in the same category, and it's also forgivable, just like the rest of these sins. It's in the category of things that can be washed away by the power of God's Spirit and in the right. waters of baptism. And if you're a Christian and you're struggling and stumbling with these things, maybe in your own heart, in your own mind, and in your own practice, that that your core identity is not those things. Mm-hmm. Your core identity is Jesus Christ. And that's true for the person addicted to pornography, the person who is addicted to alcohol, the person who is, you know, struggling gossip. with greed yeah. and gossip and yeah. pride, and, and it goes to homosexuality as well. Um, so in closing, you know, I just... I have to admit that of all the podcasts we've done, this is the one that we've probably put the most thought into. Mm-hmm. And we've probably been, it's been maybe the, the weightiest, uh, maybe the most difficult to do because, you know, in our experience as pastors that sometimes, you know, like we want to be here for the spiritual care of people, but the tide of the culture is so strong that sometimes people will not even want to have a conversation and not even agree on, on the need for grace and 
And so really what happens is, is, is that people become inaccessible to yeah, us. There's just a shutdown. Right. And, and even, you know, people will say, you know, I'm just not going to listen. And, and I just think the stakes are too high mm-hmm. because in first Corinthians six, nine, it says of all these practices that, that, that those who practice these things intentionally, willingly, and don't confess these things as sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah. And that's very serious, right? We, th- yeah. This is not just a, my opinion or a Pastor Tim's opinion or somebody's opinion. The opinions that we hold on these things are, are a matter of life and death for all of us. And yeah. so there's this urgent plea for people to, to have ears to listen, you know, on this topic and every other topic we preach on. I mean, we are committed to preach on things that are difficult and that are uncomfortable because God loves us all enough for us to just not <laughs> know yeah, the not truth. That's right. right. And, yeah. and I think, you know, again, we, I know you and I are both convinced that, you know, when we're standing before God on the judgment mm-hmm. day in front of his throne, I don't want anyone who called me pastor to say, you know, Pastor Tim, why didn't you tell me God's truth? Why didn't you tell me this reality you held out on me? Why did you cut corners? Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't want Jesus to tell me that I (laughs) cut corners either. Yeah. 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 So we we need to publicly declare what what the Mm -hmm. word of God says for the sake of conscience and for the sake that more may be saved. Yeah. And so as we wrap it up here, um, I just want to ask some heart questions here. You know, number one, as a listener, are, are you willing to hear God out on this? Like, are you willing just to listen and not avoid or jump to your own conclusions or find the YouTube video that or the article yeah, that's just yeah. going to affirm what you believe? Mm-hmm. Um, are you able to trust that God has your best in mind? Yeah. That he really is looking for the joy of your heart of your neighbor's heart, of your family member's heart. He, he loves you more than you love yourself or even know yourself. Right, exactly. And are you willing to, to recognize that, you know, maybe our culture's wrong mm. and that maybe maybe you're wrong too? Because we, we get a lot of stuff wrong in, in life, right? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Mean, Experience proclaims to me yes. that I'm wrong a lot. And could, you know, could you be wrong? Mm-hmm. And you might say, well, pastors, what if you're wrong? Mm-hmm. We can't afford to be wrong on this. I mean, that's why we've devoted our lives to studying the scriptures is yeah. because this stuff is too important to be wrong about. Um, and then finally, am I willing to walk with people who are experiencing same-sex attraction with a love that is rooted in truth and with a truth that's rooted in love? And what yeah. I mean by that is if you're convinced of what the scriptures say you know, about sexuality, are you willing to be a, a person who's going to come alongside and love and just walk with somebody who's struggling? But also, if you, if you, are, if you have people in your lives you know, who are struggling or living in these situations, are you willing to love them enough to walk with them in truth mm-hmm. and, and not just be somebody who's going to um, affirm in an unhealthy way? We want to affirm people's humanity and their value before God, but that doesn't mean that we're going to affirm every practice and lifestyle. 
And yeah. are we willing to have that kind of love for people? Yeah, I think this is, this is uh, Christ, right? He came yeah. down in grace and truth. Mm-hmm. And we've seen his light and we're compelled by it. We want to share it. So yeah, please do consider these things deeply. Our, our, heart, our heartfelt prayer is that um, God's word would seep into our community and just really enlighten us and help us. Uh, dear God, help us as, as our, our world is struggling with sexuality. See you next time.